today's scripture reading is from Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have, what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Dan. Grateful for Dan serving in, uh, in this way of giving us the announcements. And he's headed right downstairs to, uh, to teach our elementary school students. And so I'm grateful for all of you who uh, serve in uh, multiple ways each and every Sunday morning and uh, for those who serve in children's ministry. So we had Dan doing double duty today. So thankful for him and that. Um, this morning, uh, my name is, uh, is not, not just this morning, every morning, my name is Bill Gorman, uh, and I serve as the, one of the pastors here and get the joy of opening God's Word with you this morning. As we do that, uh, I'd love to ask for, um, for God's Spirit to be at work. Do we want to pray and ask that He would bring life uh, to His Word as, as, we, as we hear it afresh this morning? So let's do that now. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you that you have spoken and that you continue to speak Uh, to us through your word, that you tell us that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so I pray that this morning, as we, and I include myself, as we afresh listen to these words, as we meditate on these words, think about them together, um, that your spirit would uh, convict, encourage, challenge, comfort um, us wherever we're at, whatever we need this morning, that we'd receive that from you. And we pray this in faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, there are lots of situations in life where uh, compromise is the key to success, where compromise makes the difference, right? Uh, you know, in little things, you're going grocery shopping, and you say, you know, say well, we're going to get, uh, you know, ground beef this week instead of steak, so we have enough uh, money to 
buy the milk for the kids also. Or maybe it's when you're car shopping and you say, okay, well, our mortgage payment is this, so we're not going to get quite as new a car as we might have wanted. Compromise is such a key part of, of making decisions in, in life, right? Whether that's uh, at work or in relationships, in parenting, uh, in, in governing, right? Mis- the, uh, the ability to creatively compromise often makes the difference between something happening and and something not happening, between getting something done and something not getting done. When you're willing to to give a little where then you can get a little, where everyone can feel like they're they're winning in the midst of this compromise. But there are some things you should never compromise on, right? There are just some things like compromise does not work. <laughs> there are moments like when you're about to have surgery where compromise uh, can cost you everything and get you nothing, where there are certain things you just never want to compromise on. And what we see in this, this really sobering letter from Jesus to the church in Thyatira this morning is that compromising with Jesus gets you nothing, the compromising with Jesus gets you nothing. And there are a lot of overlap between the themes in this letter, the letter to Thyatira, and the letter we looked at last week, which was to the church in Pergamum. And if you're just kind of jumping in with us, uh, you're here visiting this morning, we are in the middle of a series where we're looking at the seven letters that Jesus writes to seven local churches in what is now modern-day Turkey, in kind of what was called Asia Minor. Those are the first couple chapters of Revelation. You get these, these letters from Jesus to these churches. If you have a Bible where the words of Jesus are, are printed in red, Revelation 2 and 3 in your Bible are full of red ink. These are Jesus' words to these particular churches. And again, this week, last week, there's a lot of themes that overlap. And I'd encourage you, if you missed last week, to uh, listen on the podcast. And you can do that. If you've never done that, you can go to our website, just ChristCommunityKC.org, and you just click on, there's a, a tab that says resources. And when you do that, then you'll see sermons. And you can listen to current sermons or any of the series from many years ago, right, are all posted there. Or if you are like me, I just like to use a podcast app, and you can just go search for Christ Community Brookside campus in whatever podcast app you use, you'll find that and you can listen. So, and actually we'll say hello, hello to all the people who are listening on the podcast. Uh, you can, well, just a little greeting for us here on Sunday morning. Uh, for those of you who are listening later on, we're so grateful that you have joined us in that way. But a major difference between the church in Pergamum, which we looked at last week, and then Thyatira this week, is last week we really focused on how false beliefs uh, that typically hide out kind of in, nor- in narrative stories and scripts that we live in our lives, how false beliefs that hide out there kind of impact our life. This week, we really want to focus on the impact of compromise in, in our relationship with Jesus, how it is easy for compromise to begin to creep in. And again, there are times in life when compromise is, is needed, when it's the right thing to do, but that is never the case with Jesus. Because following Jesus as king which is what Christians believe that Jesus is, that he has become king, that when he died and rose again from the dead, that he is actually now ruling and reigning in the universe. That when we follow Jesus as king, that is a whole life endeavor. And that is precisely what Jesus is saying to the church in Thyatira. And it's what he is saying to us here at the church of Christ's community. And when it comes to the church's loyalty to Jesus, Jesus is saying just okay is not okay, that it has to be 100%. And so this morning we want to look at three qualities, three qualities of an uncompromising church. 
But before we dive into those three, we want to take a minute just to explore a little bit about this city of Thyatira. What is this place like that Jesus is writing to, this, this city that this church in Thyatira is located? Now, uh, this city is, is in modern-day Turkey. We mentioned that. Uh, and it's the modern-day Turkish city called Akazar, which uh, literally means White Castle, which maybe that has more of a beautiful connotation in, uh, in Turkey. Here in the United States, we just associate White Castle with uh, burgers that taste like regret. Um, but Thyatira uh, was, a, was an affluent city, right? So it was a thriving affluent city that had a strong economy, and it was really built on two main industries. So you had a, a metal working industry and also a, a fabric. A, they produced like kind of really beautiful high-end uh, material and fabric. And like most Greco-Roman cities during the first century, Thyatira was deeply steeped in pagan uh, religion and worship that influenced all of life. In fact, really in the ancient world, they didn't have a category of of religion that was separate from the rest of life. There was not a concept of like the separation of, of church and state or I have like a religious life. It pervaded everything. And like uh, than all the rest of those, them for us. That's why following Jesus for the Christians in Thyatira had to be a whole life endeavor because the impacts of what was drawing them away from Jesus were scattered throughout all of life. The same is true for us today. And as a result, the Christians in Thyatira found themselves compromising on their allegiance to Jesus by tolerating false teaching and by encouraging and engaging in pagan practices that were, again, they were seamlessly connected to their work and to the broader economy. It was woven into what it meant to just live in the city. And this is the central issue that Jesus addresses that was plaguing the church in Thyatira, was this compromise. And, and, and in a way, this is kind of the, the, the picture. They were compromised in their allegiance. It's almost like they're walking into Arrowhead Stadium wearing a chief's jersey, but a patriot's hat. <laughs> that's, that's kind of the picture. They are loyal to Jesus, but they also kind of want to root for the other team too. And so, you know, it would be tough, right, to, to walk into Arrowhead Stadium on game day with a Chiefs jersey, but a patriot's hat and be like, you know, I love Patrick Mahomes, but I got to give some love to Tom Brady too, right? I don't think the fans there in the tailgating are going to let you enter the stadium with that hat on and the Chiefs jersey. You can't do both. And that's the the life that the Christians in Thyatira were trying to live, a life of both. So if you and we as a local church, if we want to be a church that is uncompromising, that is, is for the good of our city, then there's three qualities that we want to see from our text this morning of what it looks like, what it means to be that kind of a church. And, and the first characteristic of an uncompromising church is this. The, an uncompromising church, it knows the allure of the lies. It knows the allure of the lies. Churches that resist the pull to compromise deeply understand the power of the other narratives that are out there. They don't underestimate those stories to draw us in. And again, the church in Thyatira in some ways had the exact opposite problem as the church in Ephesus. So the very first week of this series, we looked at a letter to the church at Ephesus. And in that series, in that letter, uh, Jesus says, you 
in Ephesus are really, really discerning. You really can separate truth from error. You're not being drawn by any lies. But the problem is, is your love has grown cold. You're not a warm, loving place. And we said a, a church without love is a church without light, without witness to the world. But here in Thyatira, it's the opposite problem. In verse 19, Jesus commends them for their love and their service. Take a look. He says, I know your works, Jesus says to them, your love and your faith your service and your patient endurance, and that your latter work succeeded the first. He says, you're doing great in this. Their problem was they lacked the discernment and conviction to remain faithful to Jesus among the stories in the pagan culture that surrounded them. Again, that was a lot of what we focused on last week. And as a result, they had allowed the lies of culture to infiltrate their thinking, their faith, their worship, their work. They found themselves essentially worshiping Jesus on Sunday, but aligned with their culture and pagan practices on Monday. And here's the thing, though. So long as we think that it's only other people who are enticed by those other narratives, by those lies in culture, we will be at great danger. We have to recognize those. And so, for example, as we're in the middle of an increasingly intense political season leading up to the presidential election, we as Christians have to recognize that every political party, every political platform is going to demand allegiance to it and, as a result, compromise on core Christian conviction. And you know what? Here's the thing. The enemy, who Jesus calls Satan here, the enemy doesn't care if you compromise on Jesus as a Republican, as an Independent, as a Democrat, so long as you start to put Jesus as second in your life. He's happy. I love how C.S. Lewis points this out in his book, The Screwtape Letters. If you know uh, anything of, of Lewis's writing, he's writing during uh, the World War II time period. And the book, The Screwtape Letters, is a fictional account of, of uh, kind of exploring how does temptation work? How does the enemy try to draw people away from Jesus? And Lewis kind of takes this creative tact and he imagines a sort of a senior seasoned uh, tempter coaching his younger nephew on how to draw his patient, the human that he's assigned to, away from Christ, and, and talks about even how he might begin to use patriotism or pacifism in the context of World War II to do this. So listen to what Lewis writes. He says, whatever he adopts, whatever he adopts, your main task will be the same. Let him begin treating patriotism or pacifism as part of his religion, and then let him under the influence of a partisan spirit come to regard it as the most important part. And then quietly and gently nurse him onto the stage at which religion becomes merely a part of the cause, in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of its excellent arguments that it can produce in favor of the British war effort or pacifism. Again, the enemy does not care where you're aligned if your allegiance is being shifted away from Jesus. And just as the church at Thyatira was being deceived by the lies of this person that, that uh, Jesus names as Jezebel, we too can find ourselves being easily deceived by lies in our Monday work. And, and this imagery of Jezebel, that's a, a character from the Old Testament, someone who is opposed to the God of Israel, who is drawing God's people away from him. And in the same way, he says that's happening in Thyatira, just like back in the Old Testament. 
So in our neighborhood, our workplace, our school, our gym, grocery store, Instagram feed, Netflix queue, financial portfolio, podcast, all those things, perhaps there are stories, lies that are saying, do whatever it takes to get the grade. Do whatever it takes to increase the profit margin. Do whatever it takes to get him or her to notice me. Do whatever it takes to maintain control. Do whatever it takes to be comfortable and happy. Right? The church that remains uncompromising knows the allure of those lies. It takes it seriously. It recognizes that all of us, we're all vulnerable to those. And it recognizes them for what they are and continues to follow Jesus despite the cost. Which then leads us to the second characteristic of an uncompromising church, and that is that an uncompromising church endures the cost of faithfulness. An uncompromising church endures the cost of faithfulness because there is a real cost to following Jesus. Uh, and it, it's, it's, it's a real cost because that's why the, the compromise is so alluring, right? If there wasn't a certain amount of cost to following Jesus, those, those temptations to compromise wouldn't be so powerful. But they are because there is a cost. There is a cost to faithfulness. And again, as I mentioned earlier, Thyatira is this, this wealthy city in, in what's modern-day Turkey now, and it was known in particular for uh, these lucrative and influential trade guilds, these groups of people that would come together uh, to sort of uh, collections of, of workers, merchants, craftspeople who enforced quality standards in an industry. Uh, they uh, ensured that the members wouldn't be exploited. Um, they worked together to provide financial support. In a lot of ways, it's like uh, not dissolved similar to like the modern union movement, workers that were banding together on quality and protection and those kinds of things. And because Thyatira was so steeped in pagan worship, though, pagan practices were deeply integrated into these trade guilds and in the marketplace. Again, you didn't sort of have this category of religion that you could even identify in the ancient world as separate from all of life. It was deeply connected. And so if you were a Christian in Thyatira and wanted to have a successful business, you, you needed to be a part of one of these guilds. You had to be a part of, if you wanted to get work, if you wanted to get contracts, if you wanted to be a part of the economic system, you had to be a part of one of these guilds. But then that meant engaging in idolatrous practices, sacrificing to the gods, and, and in many cases engaging in, in sexual worship practices to these gods. So to self-select out of those to say, I'm, not, I'm actually, as a Christian, I'm not going to participate in those any longer, those practices, meant that you were really, in some ways, committing professional and financial suicide to step outside of the guild. And many Christians who are living in Thyatira chose to compromise with Jesus in order to make a living in that city. Again, I, I feel the draw of that, the difficulty of that. Again, this is what Jesus speaks out of in the letter here in verse 20. He says, but I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. There was a great pressure on Christians to be a part of these guilds and to engage in these pagan practices if they wanted any kind of financial stability and security. And friends, these are the very pressures that Christians are still dealing with today, certainly all over the world. And here, for us, the uncompromising church must be willing to endure the costs. 
Are we as a church able and willing to endure the cost of following Jesus on Monday as we face pressures and challenges and compromising situations of all kinds? And again, those kinds of pressures, they come in all sections and spheres of life uh, from all different sides. But let me just focus the unique and economic pressure that we face. And Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf addresses this in his book called Work in the Spirit. He says, a person can certainly hold to ethical norms, but often so, only so long as the dynamic of econ- the economic system does not crush him. Faced with the choice between obedience to conscience and survival, he is likely to opt for survival. We all face that incredible pressure. What do you do when cultural and economic pressures upon you force your hand into that place where you feel like, I don't know how I can do this without compromising with Jesus? And let me just pause here for a moment and acknowledge that while it is certainly true that, that pastors, um, people uh, like me who work for churches, that, you know, that we face challenges, we face temptations, pressures to compromise, that's all true. But in many, many ways, your challenges are much greater in the kinds of workplaces that you find yourselves in. The, especially, and I, I want to say this for our, our middle school, high school students especially, I think one of the more difficult places to faithfully follow Jesus is in the context of, of high school, middle school. Incredible pressure to compromise in Jesus. I'm so proud of our students who, who are faithfully doing that. In many ways, they're showing us the way, pioneering the way of what it looks like to, to be in these kinds of places where there's incredible pressure to compromise with Jesus and yet to faithfully follow Him. What do you do when several of your classmates plan to cheat in an upcoming test and ask for your help? What do you do when a family member or friend, this is, you know, if we're coming up to those times of Thanksgiving, Christmas, we're going to be, what do you do when a family member or friend makes a racist or bigot, bigoted comment? What do you do when your boss asks you to craft the contract language in, in an intentionally ambiguous way that can benefit you, the company, rather than the client? They're the, here's a, a concrete example. There's a member of our church who shared recently with one of our pastors how his boss is, is always scheduling meetings at the Twin Peaks restaurant, right, which is a restaurant explicitly that objectifies women, monetizes lust, and yet, because of his convictions and his allegiance to Jesus, this person says, I, I refuse to meet there. And yet, this comes at a cost to him because he's missing out on those important conversations. He's missing out on the relational equity, those connections with colleagues who do attend those meetings. But those are the moments. Those are the moments when your devotion and your allegiance to Jesus are actually put to the test. Uh, at our Common Good Conference that we had back at the beginning of the month, um, Pastor Brian Loritz shared the story of a Christian business leader uh, who owns a large chain of hotels. Brian's a pastor in the Bay Area in California. He was meeting with this hotel owner, and the owner was telling him that they have chosen, because of his Christian conviction, not to offer pornography in their hotels. But that decision resulted in the hotel chain losing $10,000 every month at every hotel that they own. That's the cost, the real cost of conducting your work according to God's design. And it's why that allure, the temptation to compromise is so strong, because there is great cost 
Why are we so tempted to engage in unethical behaviors and compromise with our conviction on Monday? And I wonder if it's perhaps because we fail to see that in the, with our new life that we have in Christ, that we are to live for the good of others, not just for self-preservation. That a life that works and develops and creates and produces not purely for the sake of personal compensation, but for public contribution and for the glory of God. We actually see an example of this kind of transformed life in the city of Thyatira. If you go to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 16, we're introduced to a woman named Lydia. And Lydia is from the city of Thyatira. She probably was a recipient of this letter. She probably read this very letter from Jesus in the church of Thyatira. But when we meet her in Acts 16, and Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. So you have four Gospels in the New Testament that tell the story of Jesus's life, his, his death, his resurrection. And then you get the book of Acts, which is the story of how the church begins. When Jesus had made this promise, I'm going to build my church, Acts is the story of how the church begins to be built. And in Acts chapter 16, the apostle Paul meets Lydia, and she's this well-to-do businesswoman. She's in high-end uh, clothing and, and, and uh, kind of textile products designed for the cultural and financial elite. She's kind of a first-century Louis Vuitton. That's who you kind of think of, of Lydia as. But she, she meets Paul, and she comes to know Jesus. But what's so fascinating about Lydia is that she doesn't, in that moment, leave her job, leave her calling, and become a missionary and start following Paul around. No, she remains in her vocation and seeks to serve Jesus in the church by remaining there in her sphere of influence, yet with an uncompromising allegiance to Jesus and a reoriented perspective on her work. Again, it's highly likely that Lydia is a part of this church in Thyatira, this community that Jesus is writing to. And the city of Thyatira needed more Lydia's. And so does our city. So does Kansas City need more people like her. We need more uncompromising Lydia's in the world and in the workplace who are faithfully present, who are fruitfully productive in all that they do. Our Our church and our city need an uncompromising church that endures the cost that recognizes the allure of the lies. And finally, an uncompromising church, this is the third thing here, is one that clings to the promise of Jesus. Because while it is true that there is a high cost to following Jesus, that's what we looked at in that whole last point, there is a high cost to be endured for faithfulness. But if you ever stop to think about this, that there is a cost to not following Jesus. Christians often use the language of the cost of discipleship to, de- to describe what we give up, what we face when we, when we choose to follow Jesus, when we give our allegiance to Him. But have we ever considered that there is a cost to non-discipleship? Because it's not as though there's this cost of following Jesus, but that not following Him is sort of neutral or free or doesn't cost anything. No, there is a, is a massive cost to not following Him, to not living this life. Listen again to Jesus' sobering words here in verse 23. He says, And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. And and those exact phrases of search the mind uh, and give according to your works are straight from the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, who was a prophet that God sent to challenge Israel specifically on their idolatry that was driven by economic motives. 
Right? They had strayed from God by gaining wealth and possessions through greed and unethical practices, particularly taking advantage of the poor. Israel had compromised their allegiance to God, and that's what brought about God's judgment on them. And Jesus is saying, look, that same pattern is playing out in Thyatira. This pattern of, of compromise, of oppression. And if you're not careful, it's going to lead to the same pattern of judgment. The cost of discipleship, yes, is high. But the cost of non-discipleship is incalculably higher. And this, this morning, hear me, church, is not a message for those who are seeking to follow Jesus and making mistakes along the way. That is part of what it means to follow him, is to not get it right all the time, to, to try and to fail. This is not a message for those who are seeking to follow Jesus but are making mistakes along the way. This is a message for those who think that they can worship Jesus on Sunday and then completely ignore him on Monday. It's a message for those who want Jesus but also want the right to edit out the parts of him that seem out of date or offensive or don't fit our agenda or our plan. It's a message for those who want to compromise with Jesus, who want to wear a Chiefs jersey and a Patriots hat. But the good news is that there is a promise. There is a promise for those who refuse to compromise with Jesus. And the promise is this in verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, meaning the rest of you who have not compromised, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Jesus promised, I will not lay on you any other burden. And the reason that Jesus can say this is that that there's no other burden to be placed on them because they have already accepted Jesus' invitation to the easy and light yoke of following him. The reason that Jesus will not lay this burden is because they've responded to his great invitation in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says, come to me all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light." In the yoke with Jesus, we not only learn his, his precepts, we don't just learn about his teaching. Actually, in the yoke with Jesus, it's actually a picture of training. We learn his practices. We learn actual patterns and habits of life. Patterns that shape us. Patterns that strengthen our grip on Jesus. Uh, Alex Honnold, the free solo climber who made the first ever ascent of El Capitan without any ropes or climbing gear whatsoever, just incredible, right? He was able to do that in part because of the incredible strength of his grip, of his finger strength. But that didn't just happen for Alex. He wasn't just born with incredible hand and finger strength. He developed it through constant training, Concentrating. In fact, this is how consistent he was. I didn't, I've, I've loved this story. I've watched the documentary, but I didn't know this part of the story until this week as I was reading a little bit more about Alex and his training regimen. But on the very day that he completed this unbelievable climb of El Capitan, that afternoon, the media is swarming. Everyone wants interviews. Friends are congratulating. But he lets people know that for one hour after He's done this incredible accomplishment. He's going to be unavailable for an hour 
To do what? What's he doing during this hour? He'd be working through a finger-strengthening routine using what's called a, a hangboard. And Honnold explained later that day in an interview with National Geographic, he's like, I've been trying to do the hangboard every other day, and today was the other day. That's consistency. He just does this incredible accomplishment, but yet he's stuck to his training routine. And here's the thing, consistency for us is often much more important than intensity when it comes to to making real progress in life, especially in following Jesus. Author James Clear has pointed out that intensity makes a great story, but consistency makes progress. Intensity makes a great story, but consistency makes progress. Holding fast to Jesus, clinging to his promise happens when we consistently practice those habits, those patterns of of prayer, of of reading our Bible, of fasting, of giving, of serving. Not just when we do them kind of every once in a while or haphazardly, but when there begins to be a consistency to those rhythms, they shape us. But here's the reason that Jesus can say those things aren't a burden because they are the very means by which we begin to tap into the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the new life which we are given in Christ. You know, in that way, each of us is, is a lot like a sailboat. All right, you think about this? And I don't know what's happening outside. Um, uh, it's like a whole celebration of alarms out there. Um, but we, we think, think about this. Each of us is like a sailboat. Right, in terms of our power, we don't have power on our own to move forward in our life with Christ. That power comes from the Spirit, from the, the wind that is in the sail. But what we do have control over is whether or not we raise the sail, right? And what those spiritual disciplines, those habits do, they are essentially raising the sail, when we engage in reading Scripture, when we engage in fasting and serving and giving and praying, we're hoisting the sail and we're able to catch the wind to tap into that incredible power that the Spirit has there. Now, can God work in your life even if you refuse to engage in those disciplines? Of course He can. I mean, the wind can push even a sailboat that doesn't have its sail up. But it's not very effective. It's not going to move very far or very fast. But friends, if you begin to practice those disciplines, if you begin to consistently raise that sail, watch out. Because you are going to experience an incredible sense of joy and power and strength that you would not otherwise know. You are going to begin to experience why the cost of discipleship is so vastly less than the cost of non-discipleship. And for those who have sought to discern the lies, who endure the cost of faithfulness, who hold fast to Jesus, they receive the promise that Christ has come not to add any burdens, but to remove their burdens. The good news of this really terrifying letter is that while compromising with Jesus costs us everything and gets us nothing, those who give their lives to him and seek first his kingdom receive the blessing of their burdens being removed, the forgiveness of their sins, their victories won, their place with King Jesus forever. So friends, there are many, many things in which compromise is necessary, important, and right on. Jesus is not one of them. Jesus is not one of them. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you that you uh, are here, that you are present with us, God the Holy Spirit, and in us. 
as we gather together? Would we, as a church, both gathered here on Sundays and scattered throughout our city on Monday, be empowered by your Spirit to be a force for the common good and for the glory of Jesus and his kingdom? Would you give us the strength, the conviction, the courage to do that? Because we can't do it on our own, Lord Jesus. It's in his name, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we pray. Amen.